This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. Thanks for joining us today. In this week's episode, we are honored to have Margaret Meyer as a guest. And the question we would like to explore with her today is: What does it mean to be a radical urban scholar, activist, or activist scholar today? We will start off from an article Margaret published earlier this year um, under this title, this question in the relaunch issue of the journal City Analysis of Urban Trends, Cultural Theory, Policy, Action. Uh, the article was published before the pandemic shock and the current wave of Black Lives Matter. And in our conversation, Margaret will thus discuss with us her notion of three tipping points of the present crisis in light of these pressing concerns today. Margaret, could you please introduce yourself, where you're based, your work? Mm, hi. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me on your interesting urban podcast I'm based in Berlin, where I taught for a long time at the Freie Universität in um, American and comparative politics, but I've always had a focus on urban, urban developments and urban politics and urban movements uh, during this time. And... Um, Since uh, 2014, I have been a senior fellow at the Center for Metropolitan Studies, also in Berlin. So let's begin with the article that we mentioned. Um, what does it mean to be a radical urban scholar, activist or activist scholar today? In the City Journal, um, you, Margit, uh, discuss... Uh, three tipping points in the ecological, social, and economic systems um, that we are currently faced with great urgency. Could you please introduce us to this idea? Oh, well, before I get there, I should probably say a word about the ba background or the context of this article, which was that for its relaunch issue at the beginning of this year, the journal City invited various critical urbanists to write, from their perspective, an agenda-setting contribution, that's how they phrased it, and reference to future urban scholars at this, and I quote, critical point in time for radical activist scholarship or scholar activism. In hindsight, it's, of course, interesting that they saw the fall of 2019, fall, winter, as a critical point in time. Um, in any case, so I thought about this and decided to take stock of that moment that we found ourselves in at the beginning of 2020 in order to figure out where radical urban research was most needed and what kind of research. 
that moment seemed to me primarily marked by human-made existential threats to the planet and to the ways people have produced and reproduced societies and their preconditions in heretofore unknown ways. So I try to scan some of the critical urban literatures produced over the last couple of decades that have analyzed the causes, the manifestations, and the interrelations of the economic, social, and biophysical processes generating the present crisis, as they called it. And, and given that uh, especially the biophysical processes um, or social ecology had not been part of my research, I must say I was enormously impressed by what wealth and what breadth of knowledge in urban political ecology, urban environmental studies, and their many subfields had um, had been um, created. So the paper then basically on the basis of this broad knowledge and given the urgency of these threats, assess the spectrum of proposals for how we might create or support the emergence of more sustainable and more just alternatives. So just to sum it up, the upshot of the paper, of this review of literatures and their various findings in terms of three tipping points and implications for policy and action. The upshot of the paper was basically twofold. One, just how urgent the securing of human and species survival has become and two, how inadequate mainstream, quote-unquote, solutions to these threats are. So mainstream solutions that includes techno-fixes such as, um, you know, smart cities and green new deals and so on. And so the paper calls for a politics of mobilization that's, how, what, what, what it um, ends in, because it seemed clear to me the task of critical urban as well as of social movement scholars would have to be to focus attention and energy not only on analyzing how these processes of biophysical, economic, and social destruction and degradation, how these processes work materially, spatially and politically, but to intensify their, these academics' contribution towards stopping or redirecting and altering them in ways that are more respectful of the nature and of uh, sustainability of life. So you were asking about the three tipping points. Um, Tipping point is, is maybe a problematic term because it does insinuate that human action can no longer reverse the process that has been put in motion because some immutable threshold has been crossed. 
I I don't really want to get into this debate. I'm I'm using it more as a metaphor. Um, I I don't want to uh, answer whether such limits exist and how mutable they might be because there is of course always historical contingency and unpredictable social forces and political constellations and windows of opportunity may emerge that I don't want to define out of the picture, though it may need to take enormous social and economic upheaval. That said, the first approaching tipping point refers to the biophysical systems of the Earth, and that's associated with the unprecedented rise of average temperatures by one to three degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. This is actually where the term tipping point uh, originated. So this is all about the fossil fuels and their infrastructures that have remained locked in place. And so we continue to... Um, to go down this path. Its impacts, such as loss of biodiversity, expansion of deserts, polluted and degraded land, dead zones in the oceans, intensifying droughts and fires, shrinking habitable regions around the planet, poisoning of the air, of water, of food, of farms, and yes, of cities, have been widely researched. And also the role of cities or of urbanization in bringing this tipping point about. It's beyond a doubt in the research literatures that these devastations and continually growing risks have been brought about or been accelerated by or are byproducts of our industrial urban modernity with its profit-driven mode of production. It's obvious that ecological survival cannot go hand-in-hand hand with limitless economic growth. But in addition to biophysical tipping points, we are also facing tipping points in our economic and social systems where qualitative shifts have occurred since or with the intensifying neoliberalization of the economy and of our social systems. So looking at the economy and the realm of finance first, it's um, important to realize that since the deregulation of financial markets, which enabled the disembedding of the monetary from the real economy, our worldwide economic system has become characterized by an overaccumulation of capital, which no longer finds acceptable returns on investment, as it's called, that would generate surplus value through, say, um, manufacturing. 
That is why accumulation occurs more and more now by dispossession. Good old dispossession as with the original accumulation. Now it's in the fire sector. Fire stands for finance, real estate. Um, and in speculative market capitals, including speculations on losses in the real economy or other predatory undertakings. What this has produced is a very unstable regime, as we already saw with the asset bubbles popping and in the last financial crisis, and where losses became socialized, quote-unquote socialized for households and for states and for industrial capital to carry the burden. And, of course, with rising levels of debt. This economy, as a result, ended up aggressively widening the gap between the owners of financial assets, the creditors, and, on the other hand, debtors, the indebted, And it has locked the ladder into the bottom of this structure. So the enormous inequality this uh, economic and financial system has brought with it leads us to a third tipping point, a tipping point in the social fabric. This point is reached when and where growing numbers of superfluous people are removed from a community, where they no longer matter, either as citizens or even as people. They become mere objects of policing and of military control. So we've entered into this stage incrementally, but neoliberal pundits have long ago announced this new social contract, I would call it, where promises of equality and standards of doing no harm have been replaced. I'm not saying that in the previous Fordist regime, these standards were always implemented, but rhetorically and in the discourse and as goals, they used to be upheld no longer. This is no longer the case. They have been replaced now with an appreciation for difference, for competition, and the fact, fact in inverted commas, that there will be losers and that this is okay. So this social fabric tipping point is, of course, particularly manifest in cities where new forms of precarity, of poverty, as well as forced displacement have become by now the new normal, even in wealthy societies, where the production of homelessness or that of territorial stigmatization are no longer some seen as some unexpected consequence of societies trying to deal with some wicked problems, but they have become integral to neoliberal urban governance. And they have been turned into legitimation for 
strategies of demolition, gentrification, privatization or reprivatization of such uh, stigmatized or undervalued territories. And these trends are, um, of course, intensified or expanded by climate migration and by war refugees, um, both have been adding to the growing numbers of quote-unquote losers. Um, so, such losers had, of course, already been um, produced by austerity, urbanism, especially since the financial crisis of 2008 within the relatively prosperous regions of the world. So... I wrote in that city article, I, I read just a bit of a sentence, the numbers of people who have no chance, who are never given a chance, who become ill or violent or both, who are denied even simple dignity, are turned into outcasts, I'm quoting from Bacon, this term, of course, or are simply left to die. These numbers are programmed to expand, end of quote. And since then, of course, the new virus has, on the basis of the existing environmental and health injustices, only accelerated this expansion with infection rates and with death rates disproportionately higher among poor and racialized communities. Those are my three tipping points. Thank you, Margit. Before we take a closer look at the, um, uh, the more recent developments, uh, could you uh, summarize your key ideas in terms of how urban research then should respond to these urgent situations? Well, um, as I insinuated, uh, I, I found it just totally striking how, how exhaustively these threats and their effects, as well as possible alternatives, have already been studied especially how the new urban order of separate and unequal, if I may call it that, and the evolving new policies of dealing with this urban inequality and poverty have been not only researched, but also scandalized in myriad studies and publications. But as with the biophysical tipping points, governments have continually failed to address these critiques or they have responded with merely symbolic or, or band-aid solutions. I think both the threats and the risks of climate change and the uh, threats to our society's cohesion have been known and even though it would be technically and economically and socially feasible to address them, governments just keep oscillating between 
denial, ignorance, or some inadequate and and often chaotic uh, action. And now with the pandemic outbreak, we've seen it again, even though it has been known for many years that the destruction of habitat and loss of biodiversity create the perfect conditions for diseases like COVID-19 to emerge. Most so-called advanced Western countries' governments were unprepared and thus jeopardized many of their citizens' lives. So given this enormous dissonance between what the scientists, the scholars, the urban scholars' warnings and proposals, given all that on the one hand and the government's inaction and denial or highly selective adoption on the other, um, I basically called for critical urban researchers to do more than just research, research the results of which nobody seems to pay real attention to. So I, 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 I thought they need to start thinking about ways to strengthen action forms that might work. Uh, Margaret, I, we've already started uh, uh, talking about it a little bit. While it may be too early to to really know how uh, the COVID-19 situation uh, will pan out and what kind of effects it will have medium and long term, um, what are your initial reactions uh, to the current situation uh, reflecting on what you wrote in the article? Um, how do you think the, the pandemic um, might be affecting these tipping points, uh, uh, reshaping some of your arguments, uh, that kind of thing. Hmm. I can run through the three in terms of biophysical. Since the shutdowns that have been ordered in many places to reduce the spread of the coronavirus, many people expressed hopes that emissions would be significantly reduced and they they were for uh, some time, but as we witness economies returning back to normal, and again, my invisible inverted commas, back to this normality, which uh, social movements have been rejecting, not just social movements, but also um, critical scholars. And... Um, if we see the huge subsidies to airline industries and, and others, um, other traditional and destructive industries, this hopefulness might be misplaced. And the effects of the pandemic in terms of the economic tipping point, again, I think, have exacerbated the gap between the wealthy and the poor and indebted. Uh, the U.S. are, um, are of course, our worst example. Since the outbreak there in March, m more than 45 million people have filed unemployment claims. So that's more than in the Great Depression, including also the ones that were either registered as unemployed before that 
or were not even counted. And um, at the same time as this um, economic misery is affecting so many people who, by the way, lose along with their jobs in many cases also their health insurance and soon enough their housing. At the same time, the total wealth of the nation's billionaires has jumped as a, a recent study uh, figured out to by, by it has jumped by nearly 600 billion since March 18. It, it's a report by Americans for Tax Fairness that has come up with this and other impressive numbers such as that Jeff Bezos, the Amazon founder, made 44 billion dollars since March 18. Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook CEO, made 32 billion. <clears throat> and the social tipping point, well, as I already indicated, the new virus has on the basis of the existing environmental and health injustices accelerated this expansion of the numbers of the expendable with infection rates and death rates disproportionately higher among poor and racialized communities. And this is so interesting because we have now come and official politics has come to applaud and honor the so-called essential workers. Even they have been shown how expendable they are individually not just Amazon workers, open bracket, who organize and demand protective gear and so on, get fired or um, harassed and do not get the protection they need. But even doctors' wages have been cut in U.S. private hospitals, for example, and uh, Amazon workers who organize their co-workers in the struggle for better protection have been fired and the subcontracted labor in the meat industry is definitely expendable, not only in the US, but also uh, here. So in all three areas, the pandemic seems to me to have intensified rather than reversed these dangerous trends. And on top of that, it has added surveillance technologies and control technologies in more expansive ways um, that pose a real threat to, um, well, democracy. Thinking now particularly in terms of uh, the urban dimensions of uh, the current context uh, in uh, in our earlier in, in some earlier podcasts we've done with uh, Creighton Connolly, Harris Ali, and uh, Roger Kyle, uh, we talked about how the urban scale should really be uh, the scale at which uh, the crisis is, is dealt with due to the entwinement of the urban and, and the way pandemics uh, spread. Um, how have you thought about the current context? You know, as an as an urban scholar, you know, with kind of your urban lenses on. Um, 
what kind of urban dimensions uh, have you seen to the current context? Obviously, there is a lot of local variations between cities. In Germany, it was interesting to observe, for example, how the city Jena in, in East Germany uh, ordered people to, we to wear face masks early on. Um, and, and especially when we started loosening again, there, there was lots of local variation and, and cities differed drastically and, and they differ obviously even more drastically when, when you look around the world. But unlike, uh, Roger and, um, his colleagues, I, I do not see indications of cities or, or the municipal level being at the forefront of tackling or resolving even these new problems. I'm, I'm aware that uh, there, there is this interesting research going on about cities being at the forefront of developing solutions in the environmental and climate change, but also in, in migration and, and integration policy realms. For example, um, Hilary Angelo and, um, and, and Waxmuth published this interesting piece, Why Does Everyone Think Cities Can Save the Planet? But this new innovative, creative solution-providing role of cities has not pertained to um, helping uh, shepherd the corona crisis to a happy ending. I mean, obviously, uh, municipalities do have a, a crucial role here in terms of information gathering about the... Um, scope and spread of of infections so they they have to gather all this data on which nation states then rely in terms of their uh, quickly developed um, policies so these are our municipal health departments that that have been assigned crucial roles here but they brought to light huge problems due to understaffing, they are not up to the um, task and not up to the task of uh, enforcing quarantines, let alone supporting people whom they order to be in quarantines. And this understaffing, their lack of computers and of digital networks more broadly are all results, of course, of austerity urbanism as perpetrated during the last uh, couple decades. So the only thing I do see on the city level is um, civic self-organization, the organizing of neighborhood solidarity and, and mutual aid of, of all kinds. That, that happens locally. And, and plays a hugely significant role. Leaving the news about threats and political incompetence aside for a moment, 
What political responses have you seen that strike you as adequate or at least hopeful in this current situation? And do these responses shed a new light on strategies to confront these tipping moments? Hmm. Also very interesting. Well, Corona seemed to show that concern for human life might actually be prioritized and might be put above other interests such as profit making. And it showed that governments can implement measures that they told us for years, if not decades, are completely impossible to do, like go into debt for social investments or such things. So care work has suddenly become um, at least rhetorically upgraded and defined as, in German, this wonderful new word, systemrelevant. I think in English it's just essential. So appreciation, of, uh, some forms of appreciation are expressed for previously um, taken for granted and rather cheaply reimbursed work. And we are still awaiting <clears throat> increased pay and better working conditions for most of these frontline workers, service workers, health workers, care workers, delivery workers, all the workers that keep the urban infrastructures humming. But um, at least so far, none of this happens without pressure, without um, these groups threatening to go on strike and without these groups organizing collectively and, and, um, and making strong demands. And what, what else have we seen? Well, at first the state of Luxembourg and then the German government brought at least a few of the most vulnerable uh, children, refugees from camps in Greece. That, of course, is just so unconscionably pitiful, especially since we just, quote-unquote, celebrated Global Refugee Day, which reminded everybody that there are currently 80 million people fleeing from their homes, more than ever. And Western governments have been responding, what, with militarization? and denial mostly. So I'm not sure that that little act uh, counts for much. There are other more, more promising or, or potentially promising actions of governments that, that point in the direction and need to be deepened and widened and broadened, such as releasing prisoners in some American cities and states Unfortunately, it must be said, usually without giving them any resources. And talking of prisons, I 
we also need to be aware how uh, jail cycling continues to be a problem because it it uh, it spreads the infection risk. There, there just was a study on Cook County Jail in, in Chicago that showed that more than 40% of the infections in, no, how was it? I forget, some enormous high number of infections are due to people that um, were arrested and spent little time in jail, but both in in transport and in the accommodations there, um, they face conditions that are just enormously infectious. And that also makes us very wary about the continued arrests of uh, protesters. Jumping ahead slightly to uh, our next big topic. Anyways, we are here discussing the um, positive responses. Another one was the suspension of evictions and the rent moratoriums and the uh, offering of hotel rooms to homeless people. Both of these, all of these um, policies should definitely be um, expanded, need to be expanded because uh, the crisis will in the long term create more homelessness and more precarious living arrangements. And one of the most hopeful um, developments that has come out of the corona crisis is the way neighborhoods have organized themselves in solidaristic ways. Um, sometimes it's just just mutual aid. Um, in, in France, uh, around uh, Paris, especially so-called solidarity brigades have emerged that not only organize the necessary aid and support for poor communities, but they also connect that mutual aid work with political organizing. Um, so... The coronavirus response shows that rapid government action to avert crises is possible. So it leaves us with the question, why not with regard to the climate emergency and the threats to the social cohesion of our societies? So if we see the fundamental changes happening in our modes of living and you refer to um, some of those in your article um, so fundamental breaks happening in, in, in terms of what Brandt and Wissen call imperial modes of living um, which by that they mean the kind of hegemonic modes of living in the global north which rely on or predicated upon the planetary reach of exploitative relationships, the way the capitalist economy works globally. Um, David Harvey has talked about uh, how the coronavirus can be seen uh, as a, almost as an anti-capitalist agent, you know, some kind of disruptive uh, force um, that creates a, a, a fundamental break in uh, forms of uh, compensatory consumption you know, around tourist industries, Festivalization, all these kind of patterns of behavior. 
where do you see the opportunities and threats uh, uh, in, in terms of fundamental breaks in lifestyles, modes of living, uh, and uh, the the openings perhaps towards more equitable and uh, non-alienating modes of living? Well, at the beginning of your question, you mentioned uh, Willy Brandt and Markus Wissen's work on the imperial modes of living, but they did not really see fundamental breaks happening there just yet. They are calling for such breaks and they're arguing that they are absolutely necessary. So, um, yeah, again, some people interpret the outbreak and what it has brought with it as um, as pushing us in, in into that direction, but and especially governments into that direction. But unlike with the threats to our biophysical environment, which I actually see as way more comprehensive and more serious than the virus. This time, with the virus, governments have sprung into action in order to, as they say, avoid a massive health crisis. Um, I think the real reason is to avoid more massive economic crisis, which in any case had already been um, underway. So unlike with Hmm. Many, many governments, and I mean wealthy Western governments, even abandoned what, what used to be axiomatic economic dogma, like that they are going massively into debt in order to stabilize their economies. But alas, this does not mean that they are introducing a paradigmatic shift in economic policies, such as the one that uh, Wissen and uh, Brandt are calling for. Even if for the second time they are now, quote unquote, saving the economy with instruments that are usually taboo in market economies. And they're very much hoping for renewed strong growth after the pandemic in the same patterns, more or less, um, that have brought us to these tipping points. So David Harvey, he was right to point out how particular features of neoliberal urbanism, such as the economies built on instant consumption, such as festivalization and culture industries and, and the huge hotel and gas gastronomy, does one say that? And, and the tourism infrastructures that they are based on, these economies have crashed under the lockdown ordinances. But again, as with most sectors, many of the small businesses and, and the precarious um, 
workers and informal workers and gig workers in this sector will be wiped out and suffer much more than large corporate enterprises and the large hotel, international hotel chains and, and so on. But there are, of course, also more hopeful changes, such as a veritable boom in bicycles as people seek to avoid both public transport for the infection risk and cars increasingly for environmental reasons. And this has in many places led to city governments to widen and to expand bicycle lanes. Of course, in Berlin, with its red-red-green uh, government coalition, but also in Rome, and, and I read even in Manila. Um, unfortunately, they are not making public transport free yet, which it would also be a good time, a good opportunity to do. <clears throat> but more equitable and non-alienating ways of living, as you ask, will, I think, will require a lot more. It will... Uh, require a transition out of our imperial mode of living and its urban um, correspondence. It will mean replacing our exploitative and predatory ways of producing and consuming. So some um, environmental and ecological and, and leftist groups are trying to seize the opportunities the pandemic has opened up in this regard to push governments to bail out not just the same old destructive industries, but to use the restart for a shift towards structurally more sustainable policies. But in order to get such policies implemented will require a lot more collective organizing and building up pressures, such as is now actually happening with the widening of strikes and the broadening of demonstrations triggered by um, racial and social injustice, but more and more participants of these um, protests are seeing and understanding the structural basis of these forms of injustice. So, I mean, we see now and and globally a lot of people and scholars, including urban scholars, meeting and conferencing and planning around such organizing. They're bringing together environmental and climate and labor and urban scholars and activists. For example, this coming weekend, uh, June 26 to 28, there'll be an international online conference for climate justice under the motto produce less, share fairly, decide jointly. 
where the participants will develop demands for industrial conversion and radical system change. I can give you the link. Okay, let's uh, think about um, the implications uh, of the academic world of urban research in these imperial modes of living. And in your article, you also wrote about how Uh, as members of global academic networks, uh, urban researchers, or we are tied to the uh, quote-unquote high-carbon lifestyle that we actually deplore. So what may academics make out of this new situation that we're living in, in view of our ways of of working, of, of doing urban research? What long-lasting shifts can you see or do you envision? Well, we'll see. I uh, certainly hope that not only corporations have learned that many meetings can be effective with virtual instead of physical presence. Um, so far, uh, I don't know, um, INURA, for example, the International Network for Urban and Regional Action, which you are also um, active in, was supposed to have its annual meeting, which um, it postponed instead of maybe questioning what other forms, maybe mixed forms of online and local physical presence it might um, take take place in. Um, the I know that the Australian members cannot wait to get on airplanes again and for their country to reopen. Interestingly, there was a, a conference on social movements, very interesting, shaping the futures of diverse societies that I really wanted to attend. It was scheduled for April, the end of April. And, and so I asked in January, I asked, do you uh, also allow or provide for some form of uh, Zoom or other, other digital presence? And they said, oh, no, too complicated. Blah, blah. But um, lo and behold, Corona turned the organizers into Zoom experts, and I was happy to be able to participate in this international and totally interesting two-day conference. Margaret, you, in your article, going back to your article, You call on urban researchers, uh, and I'm quoting from your, from your article now, we can and should contribute to building a collective sense of agency, if for no other reason but to counter the sense of helplessness in the face of technocratic and authoritarian governance. This call seems uh, more urgent than ever. Um, what does that require? What are the aspects or elements to consider to, to achieve this uh, 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 collective sense of agency? Well, I can be brief here because that collective sense of agency has been brought onto the historical stage by the protests against the police murder of George Floyd. This spark that ignited a 
protest movement broader than ever in U.S. history. That, anyways, is the finding of a quick study by a couple social movement researchers who have been researching U.S. movements for uh, quite a while in the recent past, Lara Putnam and Jeremy Pressman and Erica Chenoweth, which, uh, yeah, I, uh, I think can be agreed upon. And interestingly for us urban researchers, unlike the uh, 60s protests that concentrated mostly on large cities, These new, this new wave of protests is, is even hitting small-town America. Since you were uh, now referring to the uh, Black Lives Matter movement as, as this kind of moment in which a collective sense of agency becomes apparent, elsewhere you, meant, you said... It's, it's one of the most vibrant movements in decades. Could, could you please elaborate on the significance of, of, of this movement and, and how it, come, it emerges now? Well, I'm really struck that uh, for the first time since the 60s, I, I, I actually and personally feel this sense of vibrant politicization and social movement, um, the, the emotional um, vibrancy of participating in social movements, you can, you can see it not only in the Black Lives Matter demonstrations, how, how they are filled with not just the most of the previous Black Lives Matter demonstrations by people of color, but how many other, all ethnicities, how many young people, how many people of all kinds of backgrounds, ages, genders, um, everybody's fed up with police brutality and the intense injustices that uh, people of color are being exposed to. And so this has um, just spread like a virus, not only across the United States, but, but also internationally. The situation in, of course, Minneapolis is totally interesting to study in depth and in detail how, how the politicization processes in, and, and the uh, gradual development towards bringing about effective change in how the police department is run or rather now dismantled is extremely interesting. And another city that's extremely interesting to study is Seattle where police violence was rampant and their uh, aggressiveness against the 
demonstrators for a whole week of nightly um, attacks with all this military um, gear and tear gassing and brutal attacks on demonstrators who, however, kept up their protests until the police department, the, the police station in uh, Capitol Hill decided to simply withdraw and locked up their station and led to the activists and local residents, this being uh, not uh, um, a downtown, but a local neighborhood of a mix of, of middle class and, and professional and, and student and just a very mixed population that, that had to endure this police violence for so long, they created the so-called Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, where they now have erected and built uh, everything you <laughs> erect in decades and decades of such events, whether in the Occupy movement, in the People's Gardens in the 60s, um, the whole repertoire from free clinic to uh, cafe and bookstores and events like music and lectures. Um, all of this now where people plan and prepare and organize for a different future. This is just so beautiful to see happening again and without any more violence and with um, negotiation and cooperation at this point still anyways of the city officials, of the fire department, of the sanitation department, and uh, obviously, we have to see how long this opportunity of uh, building can, can continue. These, these moments of intense mobilization can, as we all know, not go on forever. But their ripple effects and um, the power of agency that people, especially young people, have been experiencing in these last weeks are so tremendous. They, they are experiencing that they can, in fact, move mountains. This does not mean that there are not many differences and conflicts even within them. You have many questions about who makes up the demonstrators and, and so forth. And what is the difference between, um, well, various participating groups. There are more militant ones and more peaceful ones, more revolutionary ones and, and less so. Um, this will all be worked out and we can only hope that the various militias and neo-fascist groups that were involved in the first days uh, of the rioting, that they stay back and do not provoke, even though that is what both the right-wing media and Trump himself keep wanting to happen and basically calling for. And you, you asked why 
in this moment? Well, here more parallels to the the sixties movements come into focus because, as back then, the elites are currently also weakened and especially divided, and they have nothing to offer to um, people's justified demands, nothing sensible to offer in terms of their needs and um, their concerns. And so many different groups have now been othered and disadvantaged and thrown under the bus and increasingly even, and this is interesting, the the hardcore supporters of President Trump that used to follow him in in his view of the world, no matter what, to the extent that their own health is now jeopardized and that they are economically so very threatened or or vulnerable um, is is making their support uh, a bit more fragile as we just witnessed that his first campaign rally were not the expected million uh, but um, what 6,000 people showed up so I wonder if you could elaborate uh, a little bit on how the link of this movement is to the pandemic situation. The pandemic is extremely crucial as um, a context or precondition for uh, at first the riots and then the movement to explode like such a bushfire because it it created a, a very peculiar, very unique in the United States situation where uh, the uh, governing elites were so, um, I already said, uh, divided and uh, often contradictory in the frames they set and, and the, the policies they were making. So we have not only the huge split between or maybe not so huge split between Republicans and Democrats, but even more interesting splits between governors, many governors and mayors across the country uh, over and against the national government. So uh, many governors have refused to... Um, for example, sent their National Guards to uh, Washington, D.C., as Trump had demanded. And for a mayor, as in Seattle, to tell the president to go back to his bunker and keep us safe, that's just unheard of. So these... Um, big conflicts between local and, and, and regional levels and, and national government, uh, and particularly 
urban mayors are are extremely interesting for us. Thank you very much, Margit. Thanks to you for listening. For more information, visit our website urbanpolitical.podigy.io Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.